If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you. Today, I'm joined by Michael Tracy. Michael is a journalist, a political commentator, and the owner-operator of a very successful Substack, the mtracy.substack.com that you should all visit. Welcome, Michael. Well, don't just visit the Substack. If you want to enhance the success, you must subscribe. I mean, that should be clarified. And also, my last name is spelled with an E. That's also extremely important because throughout my life, I've been shamefully confused with different Tracy's who do not have an E in their surname. And that sometimes confuses to people as to my ethnic background. Tracy is an Irish surname, whereas people who are Jewish often have the surname Tracy without an E. And actually, I enjoy and appreciate and welcome being confused as a Jew because it actually makes people think I'm more impressive than I really am. Uh, but at the same time, <laughs> if you want to have an accurate understanding of my lineage and also of how my name is spelled, you should recognize that there's an E in there. Yes, indeed, uh, I shall. In the show, show notes will reflect this change. I just realized I was checking the, the URL and it's uh, I, I did misspell your name in this uh, in this podcast recording software. So uh, yes, my, my so bad. I forgive you. Thank you. Um, you to, I'm giving you three strikes for this podcast and you're oh at God. one strike. So. <laughs> oh God. Three, I log off and denounce you on Twitter. I've been I've been denounced so much lately for so many reasons. I feel like I'm I'm at that that ripeness of of account where I'm I'm interesting enough to be known outside of my mutuals, so that people have to have a position regarding me. So how what's your position on the on the Kashuda question? You know, is she is she based or is she cringe? A lot of people the said KQ. that I'm cringed. Yes, yes, the AQ. Um, yeah, it's a it's a, it's a big problem mm-hmm. now. Uh, and I know you've been you've been getting a lot of uh, I don't know interesting, I don't know, is it attacks? Is, is all of this affecting you in any way? Do you take it to heart that you know, people are against you continuously every day? <laughs> well, you know, it's not a new thing. When it first started happening at scale, I would be lying if I didn't acknowledge that it had some impact psychologically because when you have just thousands of people united in condemnation of you and telling you that you're a horrible individual and you should die and that nothing you ever do in life will be worth anything. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, I think you're, you have to be sort of psychologically deranged if that doesn't have some influence on you. But over time, you know, you build up a sort of natural immunity to mm-hmm. those uh, attacks where, where, yeah, I mean, they still have an effect to some extent, but not in any way that's debilitating, at least for me. And in fact, some of the attacks strengthen my resolve because a lot of them come from people who I find to be just obnoxious and also corrupt. So if I'm being attacked by obnoxious, corrupt people, then that's not automatically a sign that I'm doing something right. But, you know, 
it's a correlation <laughs> that I might be on roughly the right trajectory. So I've been attacked a lot in recent days and weeks by people who, if you just do like three additional clicks on their profile info, you discover that they're affiliated with one, with one of these think tanks in the US or the UK that are funded just outright by the weapons manufacturing industry or by you know Google or Microsoft or even sometimes by the government, US government directly, like the State Department or even the Pentagon. Um, like there was this woman yesterday who was calling me a shill for Putin, um, even though I've never actually said a positive word about Putin ever, uh, you know, but that doesn't matter. Uh, that's not going to insulate you from any of these critiques as oh, I've yeah. found a long time ago, actually during Russiagate really was when I became most acquainted with this mode of attack. Um, but this woman calls me a shill, right? And I'm going to pull up her name because it's one of these, despite having tried to immerse myself in kind of Slavic pronunciation recently, I'm uh, not that great at it. So I have to kind of take out a visual aid and make sure that I'm reading it properly or else I'll screw it up. Uh, but this woman's name is Olga Lotman. All right. Actually, that name's not that hard, but she calls me a shill, right? Um, show for Putin's genocide regime. Like I'm a genocide denier, even though I've never said anything remotely like that. And then, you know, sure enough, you look at who this person is and this is, I'm not even necessarily singling this person out. She's just representative of a trend in terms of who's coming out of the woodworks to chastise me in the most extreme terms. And she's a fellow at this think tank. First of all, fellow. I mean, is there, I guess there's no female version of that, like lady Senior lady at the think tank rather than senior fellow. Anyway, Center for European Policy Analysis. Wow, sounds really benign and um, almost unremarkable, right? Well, interestingly enough, it's based in Washington, D.C., where they're analyzing European policy. And then you just click onto the website. I mean, this is not like intrepid journalism that I'm doing. It's just like basic due diligence, right? You just click on their website, and it's almost incredible how brazen they are and just flat out admitting who the organization is funded by. I mean, they don't even try to conceal it because it's just so normal, especially in D.C. and to a large extent uh, London. I'm not as familiar with other capitals, um, but it's the most pronounced and just unmitigated in its um, transparency in, in in D.C. in particular, and all, but also London, where I am now. And, you know, look at who's funding this SEPA groups, you know, CEPA. Look it up for yourself. You have the... National Endowment for Democracy, U.S. State Department, Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, Government of Estonia, Google, Microsoft. I mean, it's like a rogues gallery of all the interests that if you think you were funded by, then you ought to be called a shill. And she's going around calling me a shill, even though I've never taken a, you know, Needless to say, I've never taken a dime from Russia, nor would I. I've never had any affiliation at all with Russia. But these people who are actually paid functionaries of some of the most powerful corporations and governments in the world, including corporations that have the most, I think, sinister profit motive, meaning to foster violent conflict around the world so they can sell arms like Lockheed Martin and General Dynamics, they're funded by these interests, and yet they have enough gumption to call others a shill. And so, you know, if I'm attacked by people who are as deluded as that, or just as kind of 
mired in a frenzied mindset as that, then no, I'm not going to take that as some sort of indictment of me uh, personally. I mean, I don't know if you found this in your notoriety online, Mm -hmm. um, but often what people will do is frame their criticism of you in deeply personal terms. Like they know somehow viscerally that you're just a bad person inside. Like they're in, they can access the deepest recesses of your brain and ascertain that you have some sort of ill intent and you're just a bad person. Um, And criticisms along those lines Again, it's impossible to take seriously because I've never met these people. I mean, I, I would take it seriously if somebody in my personal life, you know, rendered such a charge against because they actually at least have some basis to make a claim about my kind of interior nature. But people who have substantive qualms with me or qualms about my you know, political views or journalistic output or whatever, and then try to formulate that as some sort of searing personal indictment. Um, you know, they don't have any basis to do so. So I, you know, you, that, that's also a, a line of criticism that I think it, it's, would be asinine to take to heart. Um, on the other hand, and I just did this a couple of days ago, I have this, I'm on this app, Colin. I don't know if you're on that or you're familiar with it, but, um, you know, it's sort of like an interactive podcast type app, um, where you can either talk yourself or have a guest or something. It's like reminiscent of Clubhouse when that was mm-hmm. popular. And I don't know, I guess that was obliterated into the tech graveyard or something. Um, but uh, it, it's basically a, an interactive podcast where you can have callers and people can comment or ask questions or whatever. It's, you know, it's a pretty good premise for, for an app. Uh, and just a few days ago, I had somebody on who was a journalist or, you know, a writer who had attacked me, editor of liber- this journal called Liberal Currents. So, Basically, it's a journal to exposit what they believe to be the most um, formidable version of mainstream kind of liberal democratic values. Mm-hmm. And this guy attacked me. Um, and I said, look, and I, I often make this offer to critics, right? I said, look, if you want to, I'm happy to engage on the substance of this. If you have a legitimate criticism of me, I will happily respond and we can hopefully maybe carry out a fruitful a dialogue. And to this guy's credit, name is Adam Gurry. Uh, he accepted and we spent, you know, an hour and a half talking about it. So I'm kind of just by nature open to criticism. I actually appreciate criticism because it sharpens your focus, right? It keeps you, it holds you to account, makes you um, kind of ensure that your arguments are sound or logically solid, um, that you're not making any mistakes factually or argumentatively. Um, so a ro- robust criticism is actually good. And when it's on the substance, I not only will entertain it, but actively invite it. Um, but, you know, the personal stuff, which is obviously, you know, what a lot of people on the in- internet are interested in doing, um, you know, that's not really worth letting get to you. Although I acknowledge that in order to kind of shield yourself from letting it get to you, you have to have some abnormal psychological characteristics that I can't really recommend to be adopted on a population-wide level because most people, I think, would be reasonable to have an adverse reaction to thousands of strangers flooding them to denounce them as a horrible embodiment of evil. Okay. Um, yeah. 
No, I, I, I agree with you. It's uh, it, it is a, a strange feeling to be mobbed by, I mean, mobbed. I think mob probably is a, the best uh, verb to describe the, the action of, you know, tens and then hundreds and then thousands of people, you know, speaking about some personal characteristic of yours. Um, but it does feel like now with Russia and Ukraine, at least for me, because, you know, I've, I've tried to, um, to be nuanced in a situation where you shouldn't be nuanced, where, you know, nuance is, uh, is, is a, is a deaf uh, sentence for you if you're in the public eye and you want to be like, okay, why exactly is this happening? You know, you're not starting every sentence with a, you know, denouncing Putin as, you know, the embodiment of Satan on earth. Um, and, uh, it, it kind of brought some, some very strange people out of the woodwork. Like it's, it's just, you know, people who just like in my mentions, uh, you know, saying stuff like, oh, you know, I, I like the same stuff over and over again and then respawning again to tell me that they want my son to watch me be gang raped by Russian soldiers and things like that. And I'm like, okay, okay. That's a <laughs> little uncharitable. Hmm, okay, interesting. Um, no, and I, I think that's maybe <laughs> taking things a bit too far. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, obviously, you know, you know, a few a few a handful of unhinged individuals, but uh, it does feel like, you know, this particular version of the current thing is inflamed people more than other things. I don't know how it, it feels for you. Yeah. Obviously, you've taken actual, you know, reported on the situation. You, you actually went to the border. Uh, you went to Poland. Like, what was the atmosphere uh, like there? Well, yeah, just on the, on the point of the intensity of online vitriol at the moment. Yeah, since the invasion was launched, at least from my standpoint, the kind of fervor and persistence of the online attacks and trolling um, surpassed anything that I had experienced before. I mean, there have been times where it was bad, like um, if you took any kind of countervailing view during the 2020 riots slash protests, there would be these recurrent Trump controversies where you could kind of touch a nerve and you'd get a lot of heated pushback. Um, and there are even times where like the right wing does it. If you, like I remember the first time I really was quote unquote swarm was in 2016 when I did, it was, um, it was a episode where there were these left wing protesters who had gone to a Trump rally and, and, protested. Um, it was one of the first kind of signs of some sort of newfound Antifa type movement. Um, and uh, they had, I think, thrown a, to a tomato or some sort of fruit at some Trump pro Trump supporter, right? And it was sort of like a mini uh, controversy. And I put out what I tried to make clear was almost like a thought experiment to kind of clarify a certain principle that was at stake, which is that, you know, my point was that if these opponents of Trump actually believe what they're saying and to believe the depictions of him that they're promulgating, in that they genuinely are of the conviction that Trump is this world historic fascist menace on the order of a Hitler 2.0, and he's on the precipice potentially of taking the reins of state in the most powerful country in world history, then I would say, you know, if that is your true belief, then there are certain potential actions that could follow from that that would be reminiscent of a genuine resistance, right? Like if I've genuinely thought that of a leader of the U.S., then I think it would be more incumbent on me to take certain actions in concert with that belief. And yet 
by and large, they weren't doing that. So I was actually sketching out this like formulation to show that they really did not believe, by and large, these people who making the most inflammatory and extreme claims about the nature of Trump really didn't believe their own rhetoric because they weren't altering their own behavior in such a way as would reflect uh, if they held this conviction, right? But there, were, there was a right-wing tsunami where they uh, of trolls where they took what I was saying literally in that, you know, I was somehow endorsing violence on Trump supporters, which I wasn't. So, I mean, it's, it's been across the spectrum. I think most often now it's directed at me by left liberals and such. And it's been recurred throughout the years. And as like one's online following grows, the potential that one is going to get embroiled in one of these controversies also um, increases. But since the invasion on February 24th, it's definitely the most intense and persistent and unsort of shakeable trolling slash online attacks. And a lot of it seems probably organic to me. I mean, I think people are genuinely in a sort of war fervor that they can only really end to if there is a war. I mean, war has some unique kind of enlivening qualities about it that in, uh, sort of heightens the focus people have on current events. Um, and so some of it's organic. Some of it strikes me as a bit dubious, but it's, it's hard to parse. Um, so yeah, I would say that this has definitely been the most intense, uh, period for me in terms of the online wrath that I'm personally receiving, but you know, it's, it's manageable in terms of the, um, experiences I had on the ground in Poland. It was, it was kind of interesting. You know, there's not, <laughs> if there's always an interesting dichotomy between the intensity of the frenzy online versus how kind of ordinary people are negotiating their feelings about different sorts of news events. Um, the most common, I would kind of just kind of casually go around and survey ordinary polls when I could about what their thoughts were on the war. What do they think the Polish government's response should be? What, if any, action do they think that NATO or the U.S. should take militarily, et cetera? And uh, probably the most common response that I got from polls, especially younger polls, when sort of I queried them on the subject was, Ugh, I don't even want to think about it. Like they just wanted to push it out of their minds because they've been told that there's this, especially by, by older Polish people, they've been told that there's this potential that, you know, if Putin is allowed to prevail in Ukraine, that he's going to move into different countries and potentially even invade Poland. It's this sort of neo-domino theory thing that's operative. And I can't discount it fully. I mean, I don't know what Putin's full designs are. I don't really see a whole lot of evidence that he would necessarily be intent on invading Poland, but you know, you can't really rule anything out definitively at this point because a lot of people didn't really anticipate a full scale uh, invasion of Ukraine either. So you got, I've tried to be uh, humble in allowing for different potentialities. At the same time though, there was a pretty discernible undercurrent of a paranoia running through a lot of the polls that I uh, spoke to, especially older polls, but, uh, but I, I, on the, amongst the younger ones, it was almost a not quite apathy, but a reticence to even be bothered to formulate a full thought about the situation because they would rather just compartmentalize and not really uh, think about it, which is sort of different from the tenor of the discussion online where everybody has to have the most incendiary barb at the ready to express their opinion on this or that uh, latest development. Um, you know, I, I did something different in attempting to cover this conflict. And I think that sort of <laughs> explains a lot of the backlash that I've received or the, the criticism, which is that I didn't think 
I could add that much by going physically into Ukraine and covering the aftermath of bombings or, uh, you know, doing the kind of more quintessential war reporting stuff. You know, for, um, for one thing, um, just an individual, and I, I don't have this institutional backing where stuff can be arranged for me by like a corporate media network and fixers can be obtained um, and translation services provided and security and financial stuff can be handled. So I was sort of on my on my own. So I thought, you know, what I could potentially do that might be more fruitful and might actually address what I perceive to be a gap in the coverage was to get a better sense of the nature of the of U.S. policy in particular, namely the proxy war that it's waging with Poland as the kind of staging area, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so you know, to do that, I tried to, I talked to U.S. military personnel where, where I could, um, talk to Department of Defense civilians who are now uh, stationed in Poland. I mean, there are more U.S. Uh, military personnel in Poland than there have been in decades. And a lot of them are concentrated right in this border area of uh, with Ukraine. And, you know, so whenever you have this kind of concentration of new uh, military activity also flooding into that area are going to be slightly, um, let's say, dubious characters. Um, so I was able to talk to, for, you know, guys bragging about how they supposedly have all these special forces contacts and are uh, utilizing their direct line to the Ukrainian general staff, you know, of the, of the military and are, you know, tr- somehow organizing uh, shipments of cargo into Ukraine and have this deep familiarity with the supply lines running in and out of Poland and Ukraine and uh, are also very uh, familiar with uh, Department of Defense procurement processes, so like what defense contracts actually, contractors actually do when they're given these contracts and they have to make bids and whatnot. Um, so I, you know, th- th- I heard this guy bragging about it, right? And then he wouldn't give me his name and he just claimed that he was doing this humanitarian aid mission, which I guess required intense daily contact with the Ukrainian military command. Um, so, you know, you're th- th- sort of surrounded by these people and there is sort of a tenor of ambiguity or uh, uncertainty amongst just the ordinary people, especially you know, when you talk to uh, Ukrainian um uh, especially women who had been displaced and had to fled the war and had come to Poland. Um, but it, it's interesting because like, e- even though when I would talk, when I talk to these displaced women, I don't really care for the term refugee. I don't know why exactly. I'm not making light of their situation. And clearly they went through a harrowing experience and many of them spent days, you know, fleeing a war zone with their babies and, and so on. And that's not any uh, to be taken lightly. But I almost think, I mean, I don't know if you have any thought on this, but some, I've been struck when I've been writing about this that to use the word refugee kind of seems to reduce their entire life experience into this one kind of category of victimization. And a lot of the women who I spoke to, and they're overwhelmingly women who are who have left, left the country, they, they didn't seem like they want to be known fully as refugees, like they, like they want to self-identify as a refugee. Um, like it's just one episode in their lives that they're trying to move beyond now. Um, and make the best of. So I don't know. I just have a sort of a reticence to use that term. But that's sort of a side issue. The point is that they, they, even though a lot of them, and I wrote a substack on this, even though almost all of them that I spoke to, when pressed, 
did want like a, a, the U.S. to impose a no-fly zone, although they didn't really have much cognizance that the U.S. would have to do this militarily or what the ramifications could be in terms of potentially sparking a wider war. Um, e- even though they, they did favor that, by and large, when when pressed, they were kind of calm about it. I mean, there, there wasn't this sort of frenzy that you see reflected online. Um, and, you know, maybe that's just the nature of like this bifurcated reality that we all live in. But I, I am sort of struck by how much more sensible people uh, are when you talk to them in person, even those who are the most directly impacted, meaning they had to literally uproot their lives and uh, pack frantically their belongings and flee their the country that they live in with their, uh, you know, small children in tow. Even that, they seemed much more rational and easy to talk to than a lot of the people that you would uh, encounter on Twitter. Um, so what to make of that? Not sure, but it is. It's sort of an interesting dichotomy that I seem to routinely uh, pick up on. Yeah, it, it does seem like um, the way events play out online, you know, trickles into reality. There's kind of a, a really strengthening feedback loop between what's going on uh, and how things are presented and how alliances are formed and tribes form online as well. Um, and it also seems to be like there we're now have entered an era online where there's permanent hysteria. And it started, you know, inklings of the started kind of around 9-11 where the internet still wasn't what it is today. And then it accelerated with the migrant crisis, you know, Arab Spring. Uh, then George Floyd was huge. You know, that was a huge, you know, moving of the discourse onto the internet and factions and, and everything kind of reached a fever pitch with COVID. And now the next thing now is Ukraine. Uh, and it feels like for the last, how many years, it's been just this permanent state of emergency, which obviously a lot of people have benefited from. I'm not saying that, you know, this was seeded from the top or there's like a, there's like, you know, nefarious forces, but this narrative wave that everyone's involved in, especially, you know, the, the elites of the world, um, does confer powers to some people. And you could see how, how, you know, things, things are been taken over by some, uh, and they're riding this wave and they're promoting certain things. So, uh, I don't know. It seems to me like I, it wouldn't surprise me if next year by this time we would have, you know, a similarly incredible crisis that grips the world that has nothing to do with, with Ukraine or Russia. It's going to be either a different conflict, a pandemic, uh, you know, a crisis of a certain minority fighting against another minority. Like this seems to be like this, this is, this is a permanent now. This is what we're going to have to deal with. And the states around the world will have more and more powers because obviously these are states of emergency. We have to act uh, on whatever is, is the current thing. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was just rereading something related to January 6th for an ancillary reason. And I was reminded that on January 6th, 2021, CNN had its highest ratings ever of all time. So when you talk about people standing to benefit or certain factions, having a motive to perpetuate this seemingly endless state of emergency. In many cases, it's absolutely explicit and direct. I mean, CNN lives for these so-called emergency situations that require everyone to dutifully tune in to their coverage and follow the latest kind of solemn intonations of Wolf Blitzer. Um, and you know that's reflected in their rhetoric. Um, meaning they have every incentive to employ rhetoric in their coverage that um, inflates rather than deflates the alleged severity of the threat 
at hand. So Jake Tapper actually also is a CNN anchor, did something incredible in, I think about maybe a week or so after the invasion was launched, which is he, he did this whole editorial. I mean, supposedly he's this neutral journalist with no partisan inclinations or no ideological views at all. He's just keeping everyone honest, right? Which, I mean, I think has now long been exposed to be a total joke. I mean, that nobody, very few people fall for that any longer. Um, but uh, Jake Tapper sort of had a sort of a different reputation where, you know, he was sort of known for holding Democrats accountable as well and would do you know, the occasional tough interview with, you know, some Democratic senator or whatever. Um, and so he does this whole editorial on his show. I think it was the um, 10 days or so after the invasion where he basically denounces every president that had been in office under Putin prior to Biden. So he denounces Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump, all for, according to Tapper, coddling, excusing, or justifying Putin's rise to tyrannical power in a way that, thank God, Biden was finally now putting an end to. Um, so this really wasn't a part of, I mean, people might say that this is just Jake Tapper showing his true colors as some sort of Democratic partisan who loves Joe Biden. I don't think that's quite it. I think, you know, the, the reason why we get so many of these frenzies or so-called state of emergencies during uh, foreign policy crises and like, uh, or, you know, claimed crises and at the Afghanistan withdrawal last year was another example of it, I think, although not quite as intense, uh, is because it sort of emanates out of this ideology around the national security state and American hegemonic primacy um, that really is sort of the animating value for a lot of these more, quote, establishment journalists who, if they were just outright unabashed partisans on every issue, like if Jake Tapper was just campaigning for Democrats, you know, that wouldn't be in his career interests, right? I mean, that means that he wouldn't get Republicans on his show uh, and he could just be dismissed more easily. But it's all—it's just as much in his career interest to be this kind of fulsome propagator of this ideology around American sort of hege hege hegemony. And even if that requires somehow denouncing George Bush as an appeaser of Putin and also Obama and Bill Clinton and forget Trump, of course, Trump will be denounced for this. But to also denounce Trump's three most three predecessors for that, I thought was sort of a very telling moment in terms of the ideological fervor that's developed um, around this issue. You know, I think you're right to characterize us being in this state of never-ending emergency. I, I, I've called it permanent emergency. And actually during COVID, one of the things that I covered um, for Substack uh, naturally, and you can subscribe to read this. Actually, I think it's free, whatever. Just you know, enter your dopey little email address in the box and you can get it. Um, was that there, there was actually a huge array of regulations and laws and executive decrees put in place that reflected and enshrined the state of permanent emergency, even almost two years on. I haven't covered the issue as much recently because of Ukraine, but I, this was in December of last year. You know, you would go and look at these sort of county level decrees and, and places with various like Miami, Miami-Dade County, Florida, or uh, uh, Indiana, uh, you know, parts of uh, California, Everywhere, red states and blue states, really, mostly, you know, disproportionate, I would say, blue states, but also there were patches of red states that did the same thing, where they would impose these unilateral sort of so-called emergency authorities. And um, and 
they would be renewed basically indefinitely regardless of the nature of the threat. So they actually enshrined and codified this concept of a permanent emergency that had been maybe uh, germinated originally on social media and now is a feature of law. Like, for example, um, when these cities imposed vaccine uh, passport schemes, uh, you know, Boston, in uh, definitely New York, Minneapolis, St. Paul, other places, the mayors didn't do this through any kind of deliberative process where, you know, the city council holds hearings and then they decide to pass a law and then it goes through a period of public comment or something. No, the, the, the mayors almost uniformly did it on a unilateral basis where they could just decree that the vaccine passport policy was going to be um, imposed and henceforth it was imposed. Um, and that was because they were still invoking the same powers that they originally invoked in March of 2020 to now justify the implementation of measures that really had nothing to do with that initial uh, so-called state of emergency around March 2020 that I think most people at the time were willing to tolerate and found maybe defensible under the circumstances. They were using that same rationale almost two years later to put in stuff that they couldn't even really defensively articulate any epidemiological or medical rationale for. Um, so yeah, I mean, so when you're talking about a permanent state of emergency, it's not just a matter of people being in a constant uproar online. It's actually it actually manifests in terms of how the government operates. Now, I sort of pin, I sort of put the beginnings of this, at least in terms of the current era of permanent emergency, in, in 2016. I think there was a very striking sort of epistemic shift in 2016, definitely amongst the U.S media and political class, where the purported stakes of an election were heightened to such a dramatic extent that it drove a ton of people crazy and actually caused a lot of the media to abolish the journalistic centers that they at least had previously claimed to abide by. Now, there are even prior, prior to 2016, there were tons of problems with the media and, you know, pretending to be objective when they weren't. And was objectivity even a doctrine that we want to necessarily advocate journalists aspiring to because it kind of entails just lying and pretending that everybody's the same or carries equal moral weight. So these debates had raged prior to 2016, but in 2016, they didn't even pretend any longer to be objective. And I think that co also coincided with Twitter um, really being the engine of you know, social media in general, but Twitter in particular amongst the media class really being the engine driving this kind of sentiment where it was taken as morally obligatory upon journalists to not just cover Trump, right, but to so-called defend democracy by standing up against Trump. So stand with democracy, stand against Trump. And now we're told to stand with Ukraine. And we had to stand with George Floyd and we had to stand against COVID. And it's, you know, these slogans kind of all congeal into the same sort of frenetic uh, disposition that I really think came about in earnest in 2016. Maybe you could find different precursors to it before that, but I think there was this um, convergence of social media's influence reaching a tipping point, at least in terms of how it dictated the priorities of the media. And Trump actually himself was part of this by making Twitter his primary communications platform. Um, and uh, also this kind of apocalyptic proclamation that there were like these dire existential stakes in 2016. And then when the fascistic menace 
you know, or the new Hitler actually wins. Well, I mean, if you take that, if you take, had taken this say seriously, the rhetoric during the 2016 campaign, that really was a, a, an all, a world historic calamity in that, you know, Trump was either going to impose a network of concentration camps. Actually, remember AOC thought she found a concentration camp at one point. Um, and or he was going to blow up the world in a nuclear nuclear annihilation. Ironically enough, we seem to be much closer now to nuclear annihilation than we ever were under Trump. Um, or you know he was going to I don't know route mass murder all Hispanics and you know whatever the the, the supposed fear was um, that seemed to have come to fruition. And you know then you have this whole issue of you know are all Trump supporters racist? And are they sort of morally uh, culpable for what now Trump does? That there's a similar sort of logic at play when you see people kind of contemplating what to do with Russian society now because they're supporting Putin and Putin's approval ratings actually increased. Like another so-called fellow at that think tank that I mentioned earlier, the European policy, whatever think tank, was musing um, recently about that, uh, about punishment not only needing to be doled out against Putin and his government, but against Russian society itself, because there's sort of some innate kind of uh, viciousness or cynicism or some kind of toxic stew of negative qualities in the actual kind of Russian psyche that needs to somehow be extirpated. Um, and there was like a, you know, a comparable dynamic here with, with Trump supporters in the U S um, uh, and, and that even took on a more kind of fevered valence after January 6th, where not only did these did supporters of Trump enable the accession of this, you know, unprecedented fascist menace who is collapsing democracy and destroying the entire liberal international order or whatever, uh, but they're also insurrectionists. I mean, they're also acquiescing to literal insurrection to overthrow the government. That's what it was called, right? I mean, it wasn't that, but that's how it was, what it was called. And now they have this a kind of um, weapon in their arsenal in perpetuity for as long as Trump is around and kind of toying with the idea of running for president. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. Uh, but as long as that like that threat can be pointed to, then they're going to be able to gin up that same kind of aura of emergency that they uh, sort of went out to dinner on, uh, ate out on, I guess is the phrase, in, from 2016 to 2020. Um, regardless of whatever happens with you know, some kind of COVID thing or Ukraine, I think that the, the, the underlying Trump dynamic um, really was a turning point in, and, and that I, I kind of put down to this transformation that 2016 occasion, because there's always, you know, been war. I mean, there was a war in, you know, Putin, uh, Russia annexed Crimea in 2014 and there was a coup and such. And it was not, I don't think as a, obviously didn't reach the scale of fighting uh, that we see now, but it was a significant world event, right? And people were following it. But I, I do think that there's like Trump sort of uh, permanently unhinged something in the collective psyche of the elite media and political class that, you know, it's like a, it opened a can of worms that can never be put back in. Um, and, uh, and I think that's actually, actually part of the reason why the reaction to Putin himself is so insane and why anybody who's 
who maybe has a more realist or a, a more circumspect opinion or perspective on the situation now is automatically going to be castigated because, and I wrote about this for Substack as well, starting to constantly plug my Substack, but you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I wrote about this recently uh, right after the war was launched, which is that, you know, there was this interesting phenomenon where uh, if you look at what the top diplomat and the top government officials in the Biden administration were saying in the run up to the war. So in particular, Anthony Blinken, the secretary of state, he was repeatedly asked, you know, look, we're trying to, you're saying a war is imminent. What are you willing to do diplomatically to avert that potentiality that you're saying is almost a sure, is a sure thing. Like they didn't even say there was any doubt about this war coming up. And uh, he, he was asked, you know, are you willing to put on the table this idea of NATO not accepting Ukraine as a member. I mean, they had indicated that, yeah, you know, Ukraine entering NATO was not like a realistic possibility anytime soon, but they weren't willing to relinquish the principle that NATO could accept Ukraine as a member. And that was exactly one of the grievances cited by Putin because he had actually evidence on his side showing that there was this attempt to increasingly integrate Ukraine into NATO. It wasn't hidden. NATO elevated Ukraine into this enhanced partner status in, just in 2020, under Trump, by the way. So, so I mean, as he was colluding with Putin, he was, um, you know, at least tacitly supporting this NATO integration with Ukraine, with the Ukrainian military, which was like a red line that Putin said ought, can never be, be crossed, and it was being repeatedly uh, crossed. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, uh, so, so, but, but, but Blinken ruled out that possibility, right? Ruled out any diplomatic concession. And what is the reason why I think he did that or one plausible reason? Well, it's because from 2016 to 2020, Putin was elevated as not just a bad guy on the world stage, right? But this, what Hillary Clinton called this grand godfather of global right-wing extremism. And, um, and one of the fruits of this reign of terror that Putin supposedly was on was that he installed Trump into the White House. Like he collusively was able to engineer this uh, Manchurian candidate scheme to put Trump in power and then be the puppet master. Run. I mean, people were actually claiming, and I'm sure you recall. $100,000 in Facebook ads did it. Well, yeah, but, but, but people actually believed that Russia had subverted the U.S. government. Like, it wasn't just that, oh, there might have been some light coordination amongst some of Trump's underlings and, you know, troll farms in St. Petersburg or something. No, they were claiming that the Putin was in control of the U.S. government. I mean, that's kind of, a, it, was a, it was like a, a wilder espionage thriller than I think ever had been produced in the 50s or 60s, right? It tra- exceeded any of the most kind of far- far-fetched Cold War, uh, Cold War plots. That, that was genuinely believed. So how, and that was that, that belief was largely uh, concentrated among Democrats. So once a new Democratic administration gets in power, they're going to have a lot, a heavy lift to justify why they're making any concessions at all to this person who's been imbued with such ideological um, characteristics and who is blamed still for, uh, you know, subverting the U.S., election 2016 to put in the worst person who's ever taken power in the country's history. I mean, that's the mainline view in, among the Democratic Party. So it's not surprising that they were unwilling to make any concessions at all, even if it's to avert a war. And now they seem to want to prolong 
the war. So they're, they're continuing that whole uh, theory as to what the proper role of the U.S. should be, which is now to undermine any diplomatic or negotiated resolution and to uh, funnel more and more weapons uh, into the war zone, uh, bolstering the profit margins of weapons contractors and eventually facilitating regime change in Russia. I mean, Biden blurted that out explicitly at his, in his speech in Warsaw 10 days ago, and then they tried to walk it back and say, oh, he didn't really mean that. Well, I mean, he, he, he reiterated that he meant, meant it. He didn't deny that his intent is to see to it that Putin is removed from office. That's regime change. And even just yesterday when Biden's demanding that Putin be put on trial for war crimes, well, in order to put him on trial for war crimes, you'd have to remove him from office first. So that's the policy of the U.S. I mean, it's clear. And um, yeah, I guess I've been going on too long now. Sorry to rant. No, no, I think, you know, this is this is all super relevant stuff. Um, I think the, the, the major question that comes out of all of this for me, like all the last five, even 10 years is, you know, what exactly is democracy? Um, how does it work under the current system of uh, information exchange? Because essentially the idea behind democracy is that, okay, you have a informed populace who, you know, they make decisions based on the best available information and the press helps them to do this. Um, I mean, what we're seeing right now, you know, uh, all the claims about, you know, subversion of our democracy of, you know, what exactly the outcomes have to be. And if they're not those outcomes, it's not really democratic. Like even the the actual definition of democracy has shifted very much from uh, the people decide what's going to happen. Um, so, you know, when you have this type of information landscape where um, information is not not just entertainment, it's gamified, it's 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 something that we're absorbed in every day. Like politics is is uh, a pastime. Um, can you even speak of of democracy? Like you know, you know, it it really is ruled by media, and whenever the the media doesn't get its way, it's it's an undemocratic or illiberal outcome. Um, I mean. How long can this go on for? Uh, this is just this is not a stable equilibrium, uh, and I think you know the the eternal hysteria it ties into that. You know they they need that to to fuel the the fire. Yeah, you know I kind of go back and forth on this because maybe around six months ago, I had one of my occasional rabbit hole adventures where I returned to the JFK assassination. Mm -hmm. um, and if you look at, there was a really interesting contemporaneous article in the New Yorker um, from, I think it was the late sixties. It was after the Warren commission, maybe 67, 68. Um, and it was an article on all these gadfly characters around the U S that, you know, obviously pre-internet, had figured out a way to organize amongst themselves and do amateur investigation into the JFK assassination because they didn't. They thought that the official investigation was flawed for whatever reason, and a lot of them came out came up with you know real information. And a lot of these were very prestigious people, like you know um, engineers and professors, if memory serves, uh, mathematicians. So like not people to sniff at, right? Um, and on the one hand, yeah, investigating the nature of the assassination of a president is just a straightforwardly worthwhile thing to do just to solidify, if you can, the historical record. Um, and it was still very much a live issue uh, in the 60s. Uh, so you can't begrudge anyone for having an interest in it. At the same time, I think there was an aspect of gamification as well, where it became a pastime. Right? It became something that gave them meaning. Um, 
it became something that they could just delve into and engross themselves in and sort of enter into this sort of nether world where their entire being is kind of dictated by their ability to ferret out the truth about JFK's assassination. Um, and I think you've, you could, there are other analogs to that um, throughout history that don't really have much to do with you know, the internet per se or even the, the current era. I think the internet now obviously makes it much easier to do so. And I think it's made that whole uh, kind of predilection a lot more widespread. Actually, Russiagate was a great example of that because the, the contours of what Russiagate was were always expanding. Like there was never a core allegation, really. It was just always like this insinuation that something was off about Trump's relationship with Russia. And it was up to us, these protectors of democracy and responsible citizens to discover the truth. And so you would see these endless array of rabbit holes opening up where, you know, court documents would be sifted through and people would claim that they discovered something about one of Trump's properties and West Palm Beach and uh, flight logs would be, be sifted through and, and on and on and on. It was, it was uh, this kind of open-ended, almost first-person self-directed adventure that clearly a lot of people got meaning from because they thought they were doing something noble. They thought that this was necessary to you know, resist uh, this unparalleled menace. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that like, the fate of liberal democracy necessarily hinges on the existence of this sort of gamified interest. I, 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 in, in politics, there's an interesting paper that I read a couple of years ago by uh, Ethan Hirsch, who I'm pretty sure is a professor at uh, Tufts, um, about political hobbyism which is actually very interesting. Um, and my, uh, I, I was prompted to look at this paper because I was developing this sense of like Russiagate fanaticism as really a function of hobbyism, meaning that it was uh, something that really filled the day of people who otherwise had no ability to get meaning and they get, were deriving meaning from this. Uh, and even hobby is kind of... Um, I think downplays the significance of it in their minds. It's not like, you know, collecting stamps um, has like existential stakes, right? Uh, it was, it was, it transcended hobbyism, but it was, uh, hobbyism was really defined more uh, like as, as an engagement in politics that's divorced from one's own material standing. Like, so you're engaging in politics not to accrue additional resources to yourself or to prevent other groups from acquiring resources at your expense. You're engaged in politics as a matter of kind of ideological uh, inclination, right? Or, or, or to have something to do or as an activity. Um, and uh, to, to, to me, Russia, Russia was kind of a watershed event in that, um, I mean, you always have people who are interested in politics that's like on a principal level because you're, you're worried about the environment or worried about, um, you know, whatever, historical preservation. I mean, this is not new, but the, the, the way that Russia get kind of coalesced into this all-consuming narrative that allowed for such endless kind of exploration and, and, and self-directed adventure to, 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 to me was sort of new. Um, but I think you're, you're right, though, that the sort of nostrums around democracy are becoming more and more farcical. Um, you know, <laughs> like we, we're, we're told that one of the reasons why we're, we're supposed to be so frenetically 
terrified by Trump was that he was going to bring down the Western order and destroy liberal democracy. And, you know, clearly liberal democracy is not really the operating principle. That's just what, that's just the pretext for these so-called liberal Democrats to justify their, their pursuit of power. And there was a funny example of this that I saw yesterday um, after Orban won in re-election in, in Turkey. Um, okay. This was, I think, in the in the either the New York Times or Wall Street Journal. But the quote is: um, In Brussels, the EU had been weighing whether to cut funding for Hungary, with European lawmakers arguing that Mr. Orban has used his major majority in Parliament to rewrite election laws, redraw voting districts, and permit mail-in ballots without identity verification from communities that favor him. Now, I lo- I, really? I always, so the, so the European Union mm-hmm. was apparently contemplating some sort of penalization of Orban, despite his receiving a democratic mandate and winning re-election, uh, because he modified voting laws in a way that they don't deem to be Acceptable. Now, I didn't buy into a whole lot of the voter fraud or slash election fraud theories in the 2020 election. Um, I think a lot of them were overblown, and I looked into a lot of my myself journalistically. I wrote about them for newspapers. Sometimes the claims just really didn't hold up to scrutiny. I don't deny that there were changes made to certain election administration law, and that could be reasonably debated about whether it's a uh, whether it's a prudent thing to do moving forward. But you know, some of the some of the the theories that were postulated really just did not hold up, namely about how supposedly this giant election fraud effort was concentrated on like three cities and swing states. You know, it was Milwaukee and Philadelphia and Atlanta. And then you didn't see the same kind of turnout for Biden and other cities that weren't in swing states, but you actually did when you delve into it. Okay, but that doesn't really matter. That's ancient history. The point is that the people who are proponents of election fraud theories cited the exact same grievances now that are being cited against Orban by the European Union, and yet they were denounced as undermining democracy, right? They were saying that they, that they were this was supposedly all part and parcel with their hell-bent desire to wage insurrection. So, I mean, clearly these, these uh, platitudes around democracy are totally circumstantial, and it's not about democracy as such. It's about when can democracy be invoked as sort of like a coercive tactic to, for example, you know, enshrine the power of the European Union or the Democratic Party or whomever. Um, I think that's that's more and more obvious as time goes on. It should have been obvious a while ago, even in the UK and Brexit. I mean, I'm in the UK now. All these pontificators about the so-called sanctity of democracy spent, I don't know, two, three years in the aftermath of Brexit trying to figure out ways to either block the result, uh, kind of hinder it, or, or, or otherwise not implement it. Um, you know, there was a, a a bona fide movement within the Labor Party, and this was in part, uh, in part precipitated the downfall of Jeremy Corbyn, that he had to negotiate these factions within the Labor Party um, that were split among either, you know, begrudgingly accepting the result or... Um, going all out to overturn it. And I don't know, it seems like overturning a referendum result that was the most, uh, that that saw the highest turnout of any uh, 
public uh, plebiscite, I think in UK history, just thinking that you have now reserve, you reserve the right to overturn it or to just ignore it. I don't know how, I mean, I, I'm, they, maybe they do have convoluted rationalizations for how that still yeah, is honoring democracy, but you know, the, 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 yeah, they do. Uh, but I think the plain reading of it is that, you know, they're obviously willing to buck democracy when they perceive it as within their interests. And that, you know, we see that pattern repeat over and over and hopefully that now um, is going to um, entrench people's skepticism about how uh, cynically this whole rhetoric is used. Yeah, I mean, they, they definitely do. And this is a, what what the whole wave of, um, you know, NGOs and groups and things like that against misinformation and fact checking and all of this stuff. Because if, if democracy goes wrong and if people vote wrong, it means that they have the wrong information because there is, you know, obviously the truth is on the side of the real right. democracy, our democracy. So that's why, you know, and uh, you've written a, a really a great article recently for, for this new uh, controversial magazine, Compact. Um, I would never be involved with any kind of controversial <laughs> enterprise. I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's somewhere on the internet, uh, and it is uh, about um, uh, Pierre Omidyar, the the eBay founder and uh, also funder of of many many an NGO with a very friendly title, you know, Humans for Good Action, you know, Executive <laughs> Committee for Interesting Events or things like that. Very very neutral sounding uh, agency. I mean, um, I have the the name here. It's uh, the Advancement Project. Obviously, a good thing. Um, the project well, he funded the, the his 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 philanthropic outfit, Omidyar Network, um, which I think is you know he he first gives money to is it the the democracy project? I mean, and then these whole names yeah. are, these names are so like anodyne that you can't even keep them straight. But one of his outfits that distribute his fina- philanthropic largesse gave a contribution to this you know uh, nonprofit called the uh, advancement project and you know when i i was just when i was first researching the article i wanted to just get a sense of like how he's spending his money omidyar being the you know the found billionaire founder of ebay who's a wealth ballooned i think almost 50% during covid i have the actual figures Many such in the article yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and what is he doing with that wealth well in, in 2020 Mercifully, he had the option of uh, spending a lot of it on these uh, newfound uh, racial justice slash equity enterprises that sprouted up in the wake of the George Floyd incident. Um, and a gigantic amount of money was poured into these projects in the U.S. between 2020 and 2021. $24 I think, billion, according to your article. Yeah, well, that, that, and that, that's a figure that Thomas Edsall, the New York Times reporter, so I didn't tabulate that myself. Um, and, and he, and he said, uh, yeah, kind of a philanthropic, philanthropic, uh, firms analysis of the amount of money that had been dedicated to this cause. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, that's a ton of money coming in a very short period of time. And guess what? Not a whole lot of that is probably going to be scrupulously audited for efficacy or to see where it went. You know, it's sort of, this is sort of a tangential point, but when I was in Poland, there are advertisements everywhere, billboards, even at bars, there are little placemats. When you go to the ATM, there's screens that pop up to give money to Ukraine. And what does that mean exactly? Well, a lot of these are like officially designated aid groups that have finances that can be a tad opaque 
Um, and they are, they seem to get a ton, a ton of money in a very short period of time. And that's always ripe for either, if not outright corruption, you know, misallocation of funds or, you know, the people who run the firms making a giant amount of money. I'm not alleging that anybody in particular is like siphoning off money in Poland from the, these aid dollars. I'm only just kind of laying out the principle that when you have such a huge amount of money kind of, kind of just emotionalistically thrown into a pot uh, all of a sudden for some sort of cause, that has the very obvious potential to lend itself to misuse. And there's a very similar dynamic in the U.S. post, George Floyd, where all these corporations and foundations and private donors and anybody who had any uh, net worth was all of a sudden in a, in a, in a panic trying to figure out how they could demonstrate their fidelity to the cause, right? And that entailed writing huge checks to these various nonprofits that purported to be doing, you know, racial justice or equity or whatever. So um, one, just, and, and this contribution that I happen to focus on in the article that may, went from one of Omidyar's outfits to this advancement project was really a drop in the bucket. I mean, I, I wasn't focusing on it because of the scope of the contribution. I mean, I think it was just $150,000, but it was just sort of representative of how willy-nilly these um, philanthropic enterprises and foundation, you know, Ford Foundation and John D. and Catherine MacArthur Foundation, all these foundations were just pouring money into these groups without seemingly that much due diligence as to what the money would be used for. So a sure enough, uh, advancement project gets money from uh, Omidyar and um, is one of the pioneers of actually literally calling to defund the police. Not they were accused of having policy objectives that might be construed as suggesting that they wanted to fund the police. No, the executive director of this organization went on MSNBC in June 2020 and specifically clarified that what they're agitating toward is to abolish the police, defund the police. And she was asked about it specifically. You can go look it up. So this isn't made up. Uh, a lot of Democrat kind of Democratic operatives now will say that, oh, defund the police was never really what was being advocated for. Well, I went to a lot of those protests in 2020 um, all around the country. And when I would see somebody waving a defund the police sign, oftentimes I would ask them, like, what do they mean by that? And they would be clear that they wanted to actually, you know, not just take away 15% of the police department's funding and send it to social services. No, they, they, they had an anarchistic or quasi-anarchistic, you know, and, and I think it's, a, you know, I, I don't even begrudge them having this view. I think it's actually a somewhat coherent opinion um, about the nature of police force, especially in the U.S., where police are often way too aggressive and confrontational and uh, intrusive. Um, so I don't even begrudge them that. Uh, but for advocating that per se, um, maybe I wouldn't necessarily endorse the concept of eliminating all law enforcement writ large uh, still, but I, I think it's like a, re a coherent point of view that one could argue for. Uh, but when, what they then started doing was obfuscating that that's what they were arguing for. And so you have this nonprofit group getting money from one of the top philanthropic funders in the U.S., uh, Omidyar, who's you know dedicating his life now to these uh, progressive so-called causes. And um, that's what explicitly what they were using. That's explicitly what they were calling, advocating, right? Defunding the police. So it was just interesting because what they did simultaneously, this advancement project group, which is supposed to be nonpartisan, right? In the U.S., there's this whole 
legal framework around so-called 501c3s, where if you're a nonprofit, you can't engage in outright electioneering. You can't have an explicit partisan motive. So they had to say that they were not partisan. And this has sort of been a nonsensical, corrupt uh, trend going back years, but it seemed to go into overdrive in 2020 because all these supposedly nonprofit organizations that were flushed suddenly with money uh, were doing election-related work. Uh, and they just happened to decide to go to the swing states. And they just happened to distribute sort of uh, briefing guides to their canvassers, suggesting questions that they might put to prospective voters, um, such as, you know, telling them that black lives are literally on the line in this election, and that's why you need to make sure that you have a plan to vote. And, and you know, I don't think anybody really had to guess whether a person being told that black lives are on the line if you don't vote is thinking that they're to being suggested to vote for Donald Trump. Um, you know, so the, 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 the partisan inclination there is not really hard to uh, infer. Um and uh, but so anyway, they're they're basically helping get Biden elected, right? Which is you know they're right, and they do this voter outreach or whatever in Georgia, Michigan, the key states. And uh, a few months later, or uh, or a year, so the, Biden gets elected. A year and a half later, he just delivers his 2022 State of the Union speech. And what does he declare? Unflinchingly, I'm paraphrasing, but it's something to the effect of. The answer is not to defund the police. It's fund the police. Fund, 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 fund the police. Um, so it seems like it came full circle where you had this uh, just uh, mania around this uncontrolled funds flowing into these groups to just do whatever kind of ideological pet projects they wanted to do. And um, then you know, Democrats claim that they disavow them or they didn't really believe what was being advocated for and so far as the defund the police slogan or whatever. And it seemed to culminate with uh, Biden, who this organization that Omidyar had funded worked to elect, essentially, eventually coming around in you know, his most high profile address of the year, or one of them anyway, saying, look, no, we're not doing what these nonprofit guys had been in a haze thinking that we were going to do when they were receiving all your largesse in June of 2020. Um, but yeah, I mean, so, but, but, uh, so that was just sort of an amusing example of like the trajectory of these donations, right. That come out of the Omidyar uh, network. Um, but he, 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 he justifies it all under the auspices of protecting democracy. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the actual organization that funded it. If you have the article up, I think it's like, it's like the democracy project, democracy, something democracy to fund, Democracy funds, right? So it's it's all like on on the, with the conceit that it's just about merely nonpartisanly and innocuously defending democracy, and you know, you know, you can some. And it kind of gets back to the point we were just making earlier. I mean, this is all just uh, window dressing for a pre-existing sort of worldview that they're trying to make appear to be like mainstream and acceptable to the the masses. And um, as you also alluded to. One of the things that Omen Yark became very interested in post-2016, when I think he was also one of the, like, uh, affected by the sort of epistemic rupture around 2016, because although he had had a philanthropic outfit before that, it wasn't quite as sort of um, alarmist uh, in what causes he was saying needed to be funded. Like it wasn't, it didn't pitch it 
it didn't pitch its activities as having these existential stakes, right, or needing to defend democracy. Um, it was just kind of your standard fare, sort of vaguely progressive, whatever, um, expenditures. Um, but ever since 2016, you know, Omidyar started, he, he donated to the original uh, Never Trump PAC before Never Trump was even really a thing. I mean, it was, it, it became a thing in part because people were saying there were Never Trump on Twitter, but then it also became a PAC that some of these linked former Republican operatives were running. And sure enough, Omidyar gives money to that. I think it was some kind of, it was a six-figure contribution to, again, a drop in the bucket in terms of his overall wealth. But nonetheless, you know, something substantial. And then all of a sudden, by sheer coincidence, Omidyar subsequently becomes very interested in the scourge of disinformation on the internet. Uh, because he just has this principled worry that people are going to be misled by what they view online. So it's not just he's not worried merely that they're going to consume this wrong information and then vote for a bad presidential candidate. No, he's just genuinely concerned about their kind of intellectual health, right? So he funds all these disinformation initiatives or anti-disinformation initiatives. And again, it's, um, it's one of these tricks that, you know, if you're an ordinary person, even if you're, you know, most liberals are, I think, you know, you can have reasonable conversations with them, and they're going to think that disinformation probably is a problem because if you're on the internet, you see a lot of crazy stuff, right? And so, you know, on paper, they might not think that there's anything particularly nefarious about initiatives to combat disinformation. But what they don't do because their lives are busy and they have families or jobs or whatever is they don't dig into any of the details about what actually disinformation supposedly is. And what it is and what you is, is blaringly obvious once you just evaluate any of these organizations like Omidyar gave money in the name of anti-disinformation efforts to like the Brookings Institution, um, the Atlantic Council. I mean, these are the main kind of interventionist organs of, you know, think tankery in D.C. And um, so there's this whole kind of bundle of ideological presuppositions underlying their supposed sincere concern for combating misinformation that have nothing to do with disinformation per se, because of course, they're always willing to act, uh, you know, countenance the proliferation of different kinds of disinformation that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't uh, pose any uh, political problem to them. Um, Russiagate itself, where, where you saw this flourishment of disinformation outfits, because mostly because Russian trolls on Twitter and Facebook were such this all consuming menace. Um, constantly there would have to be stuff that would be retracted, uh, or oftentimes journalists didn't even bother retracting them. Um, like there was this, you know, the, the, infamously, there was this story that the Guardian published, like Luke Harding, 2018, where he claimed that Manafort, you know, Paul Manafort, Trump's one-time campaign chair who then uh, went to prison on as a result of the Mueller investigation, but on grounds that had nothing to do with any kind of collusion with Russia. They just basically got him on tax avoidance and not registering for uh, under the FARA Act to basically, you know, legitimize his, his lobbying efforts. Um, but, you know, the Guardian ran this piece where they're claiming that Julian Assange in the embassy in London had this secret meeting, the Ecuadorian embassy in London had a secret meeting with Manafort in 2016 where they were applauding their collusion. And, you know, this article has now been up for years. 
it's been consistently undercut as having any plausibility. And, you know, none of the, basically it's fake. I mean, you can be 99% sure at this point. Uh, Otherwise they would have probably got around to corroborating it. Um, And yet none of these supposed disinformation, anti-disinformation outfits that are funded by Omidyar and all these other foundations that are so, you know, keen on ensuring that the internet is free of disinformation. None of them would classify that as disinformation. Why? Because, you know, it's one of these, you know, um, respectable liberal outfits putting forward this information and they're sort of constitutionally incapable of propagating disinformation. It's just not within their DNA, right? So we won't, we'd never accuse them of it. Um, So again, it's just, um, it's, all, it's all a pretext really to advance their certain, their, their worldview and their, their political interests. And they keep kind of groping for these different new slogans and ideological conceits that enable them to do that with more and more efficacy, whether it's democracy or information or whatever. And none of it, it's not even worth trying to discern any consistent through line in their stated principles because the principle is just their own power. Um, and, you know, once you recognize that, then it becomes more comprehensible. Yeah. And the, just the existence of all these NGOs uh, nationally is one thing, but then internationally, like the power that these NGOs have in different markets, like U.S. NGOs or European NGOs, like even even in Eastern Europe is immense. You know, like the, the color mm. revolution phenomenon, you know, mainly funneled through through NGOs, which are in turn funded by, you know, different layers, like uh, the layers of the onions, which which end up funding getting funding from the State Department and the things like that. But that's, yeah, an, another huge rabbit hole that uh, maybe we can discuss uh, the next time you come on. Yeah, well, I mean, just, yeah, maybe next time we can discuss how so much of the information that we're, that comes out of Ukraine and that is then dutifully amplified in U.S. media in particular really originates from these NGO-funded, you know, quasi-journalistic outfits that are supposedly independent and fierce and bold and adversarial, but are kind of just prongs of this whole... Uh, government slash uh, nonprofit complex that obviously devotes its resources for a very specific purpose. And it's why, you know, uh, all these, all these, you know, newfound journalists have this exact same line as the state department or as the Pentagon um, in Ukraine and therefore deserve to be, you know, uh, celebrated as these uh, bold heroes bringing us the truth. Uh, and I could get, go, go through many examples of this, uh, but there are almost too many to name. And, but the average CNN viewer, you know, has no idea, for example, that, um, just pulling it up now because this, this, this one is amazing. Anyway, there, there's a, uh, there's this outfit called the, uh, uh, I want to make sure I have it. See, this is why I should like prepare for interviews. So I can actually reference stuff. Um, OCCRP, Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. So this is not even really like an NGO so much as this this new media outfit that was formed explicitly with a majority funding from the U.S. government, including the State Department and USAID. And I got into a little tussle with some of these people because they were attacking me as, as they're wont to do. And I didn't even know at the time that they had they they ran this journalistic outfit that is State Department, basically a proxy of the State Department. Um, and I looked into it, and I said, "Okay, so you're calling me a shill or something reminiscent of that? 
why is I mean, what's the reason why the State Department gives you millions of dollars per year to do your bold journalism? Oh, and they and, and I was told by the, this guy, his name is uh, Ilya Lazovsky, and he, he specifically said, here's, here's his direct quote, it's U.S. government policy to support independent journalism. So he thought he was getting these millions of dollars a year from the State Department for to- totally altruistic purposes just so he can tell the truth about what's going on in the world. Um, and these guys are, you know, very involved in covering Ukraine right now. And there's this whole other sprawling network of these newfound journalists. It's like this Kiev Independent. It's this uh, outfit that uh, didn't exist until a couple of months ago. And now is the number one source of all things Ukraine in, in the English language in, uh, you know, as far as Western media is concerned. And it was basically started with an emergency grant from this, uh, you know, philanthropic wing of the European Union. Um, and, you know, obviously the European Union has different, very certain uh, priorities as to what kind of governance is going to be, come out of the situation in Ukraine. Um so yeah, I mean, there's there's almost no one, very few people are at all actually independent who are covering the Ukraine situation. It's all filtered through this lens of the uh, NGO slash uh, outright government governmental subsidy uh, network that um, you know most people consuming this news have no ability to really probe, and so therefore just take everything at face value, which is why you know hopefully what I try to do on a daily basis, in addition to fighting with people online, is give them greater resources to uh, utilize their own abilities of discernment. Yes. And and we thank you, Michael. And that's why you should uh, head to the mtracy.substack.com, uh, become a subscriber, um, and also read Michael's work and other outlets, some which shall not be named. Um, before I let you go, I want to ask you the name question. Them, it's fine. I mean, maybe they're maybe they're ashamed of their affiliation with me at this point. No, no, I think yeah. there's a lot of controversy around this uh, this new magazine, the right. uh, post liberal uh, vibes uh, trying to trying to propagate around the world. Very um, dangerous. Very, very dangerous. Uh, I want to ask you the question of the show. Everyone gets asked this question: Do you have a subversive thinker, you know, writer, journalist, uh, someone who's been influential uh, in your thinking that you think is underrated that people should read more of, um, should be more interested in? Hmm. You know, I, th- I think people should read more. I F Stone. Um. I.F. Stone had a Substack before <laughs> there was Substack. I mean, he actually had a newsletter that he published out of his apartment in Washington, D.C. Uh, decades ago. And he churned out all uh, a giant volume of original reporting and analysis and, you know, was uh, part of his whole philosophy was not being beholden to any vested interest in D.C. despite having, you know, a huge array of sources. Um, so I think, you know, uh, I, it's not that I can necessarily give you one uh, key insight necessarily he gave. And so uh, as much as he sort of embodied, I think, a style or a temperament of uh, journalism that really is sorely needed now. And I'm not, you know, trying to puff myself up as like the second coming of I have stone or whatever. But I think, you know, there's a reason why these new channels of funding such as Substack and such as other arrangements are uh, worthwhile. It's not just because you are able to generate income and do stuff that people appreciate. It's because it actually vests you with the ability to be steadfastly uh, independent. And um, hopefully that instills confidence in your 
your readership. Um, and I you know I have Stone. I don't know. If, he did have a lot of subversive thoughts about. I mean, that that was a time when he was covering basically the construction of what we think of today as the military industrial complex. Like there was the post World War II era where all you know all those interests were being kind of entrenched as a permanent feature of the Washington D.C. kind of governance apparatus and its its uh, connections also to the corporate world. Um, so he, he was a, he was a very early chronicler of that. And I think the dynamic today is very much akin to it. Um, you know, people at least purport to be some familiar with the malign influence of the military industrial complex. And then they'll turn around and give unbridled support to a proxy war waged by the U S that as it has as its central feature, the, uh, direct provision of arms by these military industrial complex, uh, actors, um, so, yeah, it's just as relevant, uh, I think, today and um, in, in particular how, you know, the, the self-perpetuating interests of these factions are given this ideological sheen and are, you know, justified with different slogans about standing with this or that. Now it's Ukraine, we're waving a flag or whatever, but it could easily just, just as easily be some other geopolitical hotspot uh, a year from now. Um, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not one of these people who thinks that everything is reducible to sheer profit interest. Um, there's often also, you know, interwoven with that certain ideological uh, commitments. Uh, but the, 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 the profit motive is sorely underrepresented in sort of popular media depictions of what's going on with U.S. foreign policy. Um, I just gave you a couple of examples of these think tank people who are, you know, directly funded by the arms industry, um, directly funded by the in some cases, the, the, the U.S. military. Um, and then they're, they're presented as neutral experts to write columns on CNN.com or give their commentary on NBC or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I think um, I.F. Stone gives a real window into the, the origins of some of these dynamics now that I, I, again, I think are very much still relevant. Thank you so much, Michael. That's that's useful. I, I wasn't aware of uh, of I.F. Stone, but uh, I'll check him out. Uh, and is there another uh, place that uh, people should go to find you to see your work? Uh, you know, Twitter and Substack, I think, is is uh, about it. Uh, you know, I have a. If you're interested, I do Colin Colin shows on this app, Colin, which is now available on Android. I'm told uh, either once or twice a week, and um, I have a YouTube channel. I have a channel on this. Uh, platform called Rockfin. But all that's, you know, you can pretty much just get by looking at my uh, Twitter and uh, I provide links to access the whole breadth of my output. Mm -hmm, so you exactly. can, 24-7, you can consume my If you spell if you really Michael's want. name right with an E. Yeah, if you, if you spell it wrong, then I totally disavow you. <laughs> <laughs> thanks again, Michael. This was, this was really enjoyable. All right. Thanks. Yeah, I enjoyed it. My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is The Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Enjoy.